No words at all. The woman gave no words. And we don't even know her name, which is the ultimate irony. But Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing. Whenever the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached throughout the world, it will be done in memory of her. What did she do? What did she do? Today we have on Palm Sunday the uh, next to the last sermon in our series called Transformation. And it's based on the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. This story is perhaps uh, one of the most apt that we could have chosen for today's topic moving from fear to courage. The story that we heard about the woman who anointed Jesus' head with ointment while he was sitting at table happens at a time when for those who were following Jesus, and indeed probably in much of Jerusalem, the air was thick with tension. And there was an aura of threat and danger lying all around. Now this happens after Jesus has come into Jerusalem and after that wonderful Palm Sunday entrance that so joyful, he goes to the temple and turns over the tables of the money changers and is immediately challenged in his authority. Jesus' disciples surely knew that he was treading on thin ice. For one thing, he told them repeatedly that he was a prophet heading into Jerusalem and he would suffer there, die, and then be raised. But we can understand if they didn't quite follow all of that. But Jesus also was encountering mounting and steady criticism from numerous people that he encountered along the way, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priest. In each one, Jesus came a little bit closer to being in big trouble, and the disciples surely knew that he was close, perilously close to the end. But they didn't want to face that. They didn't want to face it. And so this woman's act was singularly powerful. In fact, it will be told and remembered whenever the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel of the kingdom. What is it that her sign act did? Well, two things. First of all, she anointed Jesus' body for death. She risked going into a space of painful discomfort, trying to be there with Jesus and his loneliness as he was thinking about what lie ahead. We've been talking a lot about vulnerability during this sermon series, and 
My, my first uh, real kind of powerful wake-up call about uh, the, the power of, of engaging vulnerability and not shutting down came when I was uh, doing my pastoral care internship kind of class um, in seminary. And I was assigned to go a couple days a week to the Elizabeth Blackwell Center at Riverside. And, uh, you know, we have these coaching things that basically, you know, they tell you to go visit people and be a minister. And uh, I wasn't somebody who'd really thought a lot about being a minister in terms of what do you do. I kind of knew I was called, but it was not real clear to me what all you do, except you pray and you go and you be with people. And it's scary to go in, in the hospital a little bit. And I remember distinctly a room that I went into with a woman who was lying in bed and her, clearly her husband was close by her side. And uh, there was just this tense environment in the room. And um, I went up and introduced myself and found out that she was in progressive, uh, very far along progressed cancer, and which had over a long period of time kind of eaten away at more and more of her body. And she was tired. And uh, she tried to, to talk to me about the, the course of this illness. Um, and her husband was clearly uncomfortable and kept giving, you know, optimistic prognoses of the next thing that's going to happen. And I uh, did remember one thing they'd talked to us, which was to offer the, the, the family an opportunity to go get a, a, a refreshment or something. So I, I offered that to him. And after her husband left the room, she said, uh, I said to her, what, what, what shall we pray about? And she said, she said, it's him. And the it's him, I found out, was that she, her husband was driving her crazy. <laughs> she wanted to be allowed to be tired and to be thinking about her death. And he simply couldn't go there with her. And it was making her feel so alone. So I just listened. Probably I did the right thing out of just not knowing what to say. <laughs> but I just listened. And then we prayed about what she really was thinking about. The transition from this life to the next. And there was a beautiful spirit that came in the room. It was peaceful. When her husband came back, she was glad to see him. Because she wasn't alone in her grief anymore. God's spirit had been invited in there, and she'd had some company for a while. I learned about the power of engaging vulnerability, going into uncomfortable spaces where things are difficult and painful, and, and yet God can fill them if we create an opening. And this is what this woman did. She ministered to Jesus' loneliness in his uncomfortable time of fear, not knowing what's ahead, when others wanted to shush him, deny. There's another thing that she did. This sign act was really a profession of faith. She 
anointed his head with very expensive oil. And that anointing on the head was significant, not just because when a body is, is uh, back in those days, when a body was prepared for burial, uh, they, the loved ones would come and take the body and they would wash it and then anoint it with oil. And then they would start wrapping cloths around it with interspersed with good smelling things. And she though, specifically anointed his head, which was reminiscent of the kind of anointing for kingship and for the priesthood that was a practice we see in many stories in the Old Testament. She was professing faith that Jesus was a king anointed by God at the very time in which it seemed that there could be no kingdom, for how can there be a kingdom if the king is not surviving to bring it in? So she had an audacious willingness to go into the discomfort and an audacious willingness to hold on to faith when it looked tenuous. And Jesus said, Wherever the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed in all the world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. A beautiful thing, a good thing. We've talked about the different shields that people erect to protect themselves from awareness of their vulnerability. Three of the common ones, and we've talked about one each these past several weeks, about trying to be in control of everything and making everything perfect so that you aren't vulnerable to criticism from others. We've talked about having a kind of fear and, and overshadowing of our experiences of joy that prevent us from feeling that kind of exquisite vulnerability of waiting for a bottom to fall out of a wonderful moment. We've talked about the numbing that we do to kind of turn off our fears, numbings with addictions and busyness and all of these things. But there's one other one. Well, there's actually several more, but there's another one that's really common and it creeps right into the disciples. You notice the disciples immediately when the woman does this act in front of them, they jump right on it. What a waste. You could have done so many better things with that money. Jesus, you know she could have done much better things with it. She could have taken care of the poor, which is, of course, something we are always to do. And Jesus doesn't deny that. But he points out to them that she has engaged the significance of the moment fully and done a good thing. Now, the disciples' criticism and their coolness and their kind of cynicism about her action is a kind of uh, armor in the armory against vulnerability that I could relate to really well, and I, 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 I wanted to share with you a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, uh, 
that actually is the source for the title of Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, because it is exactly about the defense against vulnerability that is criticism. Theodore Roosevelt says in 1910, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, he at least fails while daring greatly. The woman, dared greatly to act. And Jesus commends her because she was fully present in the moment, living wholeheartedly as one of his followers. We have done this series about talking about vulnerability probably more than some of you are comfortable with because Whenever we proclaim the kingdom of God and our faith in the gospel, we aspire to big and great things. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom was of a kingdom of goodness, of truth, of justice, of mercy, of forgiveness, of welcome, of widening the circle, high aspirations. And whenever disciples lean into that vision of the kingdom, we cannot help but be conscious of the gap between what should be and could be and what is. And I believe Brene Brown's book gives us some insight into how it is that we can mind the gaps and engage in the gaps. That we can do more than just aspire, but that we can try to hold ourselves accountable to stretching to lean into God's kingdom. Being a disciple is not only about belief, it's also about trusting God and acting. It's about paying attention to the gap, the gaps between who we want to be and who we actually are, and then throwing ourselves in to be engaged with God's help in the process of change. We are to be about what she calls wholehearted living which means engaging life from a place of worthiness with courage, compassion, and connection. And that's exactly what the woman's act was, about courage, compassion, and connection. 
Now you might think that, that engaging the gap and noticing the gap between what is and what should be is a really big abstract concept. I want to tell you a story. I, I found it, uh, believe it or not, in, in uh, the fashion and style section of the New York Times in a, a regular column they, they pushed a post called Modern Love. And uh, this is called The Accident No One Talked About. I'm gonna try to summarize it, it's a great, great story by a woman who was best friends with her older brother, just a year uh, and a little few months between them. They used to talk to each other about everything. Uh, and one day when he was 15 years old, he was out with his best friend and came home and there had been a, an, an accident and his friend was killed. And she went with her parents to pick him up and they said to her at the time, now, this is a painful subject. We should never bring it up again. Many, many years later, as she reflected on the course of his life after that, a bright, intelligent, energetic young man who seemed to fall into one difficulty after another, didn't finish college, was plenty bright for it, got involved in different kinds of drug use, overspent, his parents kept bailing him out, she bailed him out. And after many years of this, when he was almost 30 years old, something came to her as like, I feel so disconnected to him, and all I wanna do is be connected to him again. And she kind of traced it back to that incident when he was 15 and they were not supposed to talk about it ever again. And so she brought it up with him, kind of, do you remember that, what happened with, and he shut her down and he was clear that he was angry at her for bringing it up finally. Oh, finally you wanna talk about that? It wouldn't go there. But that was her clue that that was a key to his being stuck. So she started doing research about that incident. She went to the newspapers. She went to police reports. She found out, went, actually flew down to, they no longer lived in the state, flew down to the state where they used to live to interview the person who was in the car who had hit the friend. And she found out that, that the story was quite different than the little tiny bit that she'd heard that actually he was right there and had tried to run back in and save his friend and the truck driver had had to choose between hitting one or the other. The truck driver himself was traumatized by it and told her he really needs you to talk to him. She put a year into researching everything that she could find out about what he'd been through and then she went back to him and said, you know, I went and I learned this and I learned this and I learned this and, and finally he said, uh, started opening up and told his story of his pain that no one had ever talked about with him because they wanted to protect him from the pain except it kept him stuck in it. And at the end of the story, she said, 
Three years after that conversation, I no longer see someone who's stuck in a memory. I see a father to two beautiful boys and a committed partner to the woman he'll one day marry. I see a man who works harder than anyone I know, waking up to go into the restaurant on holidays and weekends because he's no longer needs or wants the kind of help I used to offer before I learned that asking and listening are the most valuable things of all. So engaging, engaging vulnerability and, and trying to move across a gap between a family that says they're loving and support each other and one that actually pays the price to do it was a kind of contemporary example of a woman who did a beautiful thing, a costly thing, but out of love and devotion. Since I don't have any of the uh, knowledge of the woman who was talked about in the story of the alabaster jar, we never know how to connect up her story with anything else. She's there in that moment and disappears from sight. We don't know how she got up the courage to stand in front of that group of men and go to a table with an ointment. We don't know why she spent so much money. We don't know what happened to her then. But she does clearly know something that we need to learn from about engaging vulnerability and tending to the gap around us. And so I decided I was just gonna fill in some of that gap with my own resilience, bounce back, get back in there mantras, the things I say to myself when I wanna like check out of uncomfortable things. And I bet that you have some too. I, and I'd love to hear them. I hope you send them to me in emails or come talk to me afterwards. Because the way we think about engaging our world is critically important to how we live and follow God and as disciples. Long time ago, just seemed like it, just a year ago, I really did not want to do the Circles of Grace talk and uh, be in front of a bunch of people uh, talking on behalf of LGBT inclusion. I really hate public speaking. I, I don't know if you can tell, but I really do. And I don't go looking for more. Um, but when they asked, I realized if I said no, I wouldn't know who they asked next, and I had no control over it. And I didn't know if they would ask somebody who would spend as much time as I was willing to spend trying to articulate why it is that the gospel and the scriptures speak for equality, inclusion. And so I, I practiced my mantras, and I'm gonna share some with you now, and I hope you share some of yours with me. So uh, these are the things I tell myself. I am a work in progress. God is not finished with me yet. Success is doing the best I can do at the time. And then here's the hard corollary to it. Doing the best that I can do, balancing all my obligations at any given time, may not mean doing any one thing the best I can do. But the balance is the best I can do. 
Now, it would be easy if you want to kind of be brave and, and inure yourself from, from shame and criticism to kind of decide that nobody can tell you anything and you don't need to listen to anybody, just do your own thing. But that's probably not a good idea. So one of my mantras is, I must, must listen and value the feedback that others give me and I can also decide which of that feedback I will own and take to heart. I remind myself that criticism has lots of times been my best gift, even if people weren't meaning to give me a gift. <laughs> I also decided I'm allowed to pick my battles, but I'm not allowed to just kick back, keep my nose clean, and let the world go by as it is. I have to pick some of them. A mantra is, I will not allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. I will ask for help or acknowledge when I have failed, trusting that others may extend the grace that I know God has already extended. I remind myself that the hardest lessons that I've learned are the ones I've learned the best. I remind myself that I can't do everything well, but I can seek help from people with skills and abilities that I lack. One I remind myself often of is that some of what people say to me and about me is more about them than it is about me. And since I don't know their story, I'll try not to judge them harshly for it. I don't get obsessed with making right decisions because I can get paralyzed, so make decisions and work to make them right. And finally, I can't give away something I don't have. And therefore, in order to extend grace to myself and others, I need to stay connected to God in Christ, who's the living wellspring of forgiveness and mercy, righteousness, and my hope. I hope that you will embrace as the life of discipleship, living wholeheartedly with courage compassion, and with connection to others and to God. Because then, although it may be in memory of her, it will be your beautiful thing, and God will be delighted. May it be so.